Hey everybody. This is House of Hope podcast series, presented by Gotham and House of Hope. We are pleased to have Brother Solomon Amasul share the message of glorious liberty. Let us start with a word of prayer. Father Lord, I'm grateful to be here today in this month of glorious liberty, the topic of the message for today. You are the great liberator, Lord. You saved us from sin. You saved us from our carnal nature. And as we go into this message today, let it be something we hold on to for the rest of our lives. Let it be nothing to forget. As I preach before this congregation today, O oh Lord, let it not be through me, but through you, Father. For you are the one truly speaking. I am merely a machine, a body, a part of your body that preaches to others. I am merely a beggar showing other beggars where the food is. It's, it's, it's an honor, Father, to be called your adopted son. Let this message be something that I can articulate as best to my ability and to, with the best of my knowledge, Father, that I've learned throughout my years. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, so for this CG takeover service, just to give a brief overview, uh, there are three topics I'll be going over with you today. Um, but before I begin, I want to be honest just for a moment. Um, when Olu, Uncle Olubenga told me that I would be ministering the, um, the main topic, Glorious Liberty for today, I was excited. I'm not going to lie. I was really excited. A little nervous, but excited nonetheless. Um, you know, I had all these ideas that I would preach to the church, all these, I was thinking of all these ways that I could um, profoundly, you know, articulate what glorious liberty is really about in the Bible and all that, and how, you know, how well I would be able to do it. But then I remembered something. I stopped myself and remembered, this is not about me. This is about what God is going to do through me. Um, I was almost guilty of a very toxic sin that I didn't realize at the time. Um, that brings me to the first topic of this message today. I call it the sin of sins. The sin I speak of is one that can appear within anyone. The only thing is people are disgusted when they see it in others, but they usually don't realize when they are guilty themselves. In fact, the more someone has it in themselves, the more they are repulsed by it in others. Can anyone guess what the sin is called? Perfect. There is pride or self-conceit. The opposite, of course, being humility, being humble. Now, the Bible tells us of pride being the utmost evil. Of course, sin is sin. Um, and we are all sinners regardless of the sins we commit. But sins like lust, drunkenness, greed, etc. cannot compare. Pride leads to every other sin. A proud mind is anti-God. In fact, it was through pride that the enemy, the devil, became the devil. Um, from further inspection, let's look to Ezekiel 28, 11 to 19. I read. Yeah, 11 to, 9, 11 to 19, yeah. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper. Sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. 
and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. You walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you. O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you by the multitude of your iniquities in the unrighteousness of your trade and you profane of your trade. You profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you and I turned you to ashes on the earth and the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among you, the people are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. That is the devil we are talking about. Now, there's a quote that I thought well articulates these verses. It is by Ron Rhodes. He's the president, or um, I don't know if he's a former uh, currently, but of an organization called Reasoning from the Scriptures Ministries. He said that Lucifer became so impressed with his own beauty, intelligence, power, and position that he began to desire for himself the honor and glory that belonged to God alone. This pride represents the actual beginning of sin in the universe, preceding the fall of the human Adam by an indeterminate time. Remember this. Before the enemy came to steal, to kill, and destroy, he was proud. The Lord commanded us to hate all evil. Romans 12, 9 says to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. But heed this warning. If there's an evil to look out for, first, pride certainly makes the cut. Pride has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other sinful behaviors may sometimes bring people together. You can find good fellowship in friendliness and friendliness among lustful people or even people who engage in drunkenness. I'm not trying to make these sins sound less severe than they are. You know, sin is sin. But I just want to point out that pride always means hostility. It is hostility. And not only hostility between people, but hostility to God. There's another quote by um, a theologian. Um, Clive, Staple Lewis, Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, um, in his book, Mere Christianity. I highly recommend the book. Um, he said, in God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God is that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people because, of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see what is above you. There's another terrible testament to how diabolical pride can be. There are people who are obviously eaten up with pride, but they say that they believe in God and even call themselves Christians. I want to read some verses um, that will be very familiar to you. Let's go to Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out devils and demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, I suspect that the proud who claim to be Christians are who Jesus was talking about in these verses. 
And sadly, any one of us can easily fall into that category because of how subtle and sinister pride is. Luckily, we have a test. Whenever we find that our Christian life is making us feel that we are good above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we can be sure that we are not acted, or that we're being acted upon, not by God, but by the devil himself. If anyone would like to acquire humility, they must know that the first step is to realize that one is proud. And a really big step too. At least nothing, whatever can be done before it. If you think that you are not conceited, it means you're very conceited indeed. Um, now let's move on to my second topic. It deals with sin, struggling with sin. Now, we've discussed pride, but we can't forget all the other numerous um, sins we Christians face daily. Now, here's a question that I'm sure many believers wonder as they grow in their faith. How can I become more Christian? How can I put a stop to the sin, the sin I commit daily and escape from the sinful desires so that I don't anger God. Now, it would be best to answer this in a general sense, because I know plenty of people struggle with this, me, myself included, of course. However, the question is misplaced. You cannot get yourself good so God will love you. You can only give yourself to God so that he can make you good. You should know when to, you feel you should know when you feel unworthy from sin. Um, it is nothing out of the ordinary and you're not somehow less Christian because you sin on a daily basis. Um, St. Paul, he, he knew he was saved, yet he confessed the same struggle that we face when he says in Romans 7, 15 to 19, for what I am doing, I do not understand. This may sound very familiar. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that is good, that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is to present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. A bit of a tongue twister, but you, under, you can understand that you want to do something. You have that voice, that, that part of you saying that this is good, we should do this, but there's that other voice, other desire, that is stopping you from doing that good and even pushing you to do the bad instead. So Paul confesses the same feelings that we all have in our walk with Christ. Although we want to do the good, we continue to stumble in sin despite hating ourselves for doing it. So what we need to take away from that passage is that being a Christian doesn't mean perfection in our daily actions. It's more about recognizing the sin for what it is. It's not the idea that being the, okay, not that the idea of being a Christian means the absence of sin for if we could rid ourselves of our own sin, then we would not need to be Christians. The recognition of your sin is the reason you need Christ to begin with. It's the reason he died for you to begin with. Our Lord even said that it is he, it is who, it, that, that those kinds of people are who he calls to follow him. Those who recognize their sin. In Mark 2, verse 16 to 17, it says, he says, 
And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard him, this is what he said. He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the funny thing is, we're all sinners. So he came for all of us. Now, the fact that you realize you're a sinner is precisely the point. And why you need Christ to begin with. He did not come for, you know, the perfect, happy, rich, know-it-all saints who would never dare to sin, who never light a cigarette, who would never even, like, let out a cuss word ever in their lives. No, he, he came for the lost sinner, like you and me, who knows that they need grace and knows that they cannot obtain righteousness unless someone, being Christ, can carry them there. This idea of the perfect and suit, the perfect suit and, and the perfect suit and tie Christian is precisely who we think Christ expects us to be sometimes. And that's perhaps why so many of us, they allow to get the guilt of sin to weigh, weigh us down. We are afraid that the terrible secret might get out that they are, we are far from perfect and filled with many evil desires. I know that there are many church-going Christians today who confess that they are sinner in need of a savior on Sunday. You'll sing all the gospels that they are in need of a sinner, that Christ saves me. But on a Monday, they dread at their own failures, their own shortcomings. And they think that they have fallen from grace because of that. It's as if being a Christian means that we must, complete, we must be completely perfect. And any mess up means that we are somehow not saved. But if the Bible is true, the offer of being a Christian is not extended to the perfect. It is extended to the opposite, to the sinner. The law's broken sinner who doesn't know his left from his right and cannot possibly stand on his own two feet unless Christ picked him up and carried him before the father, which is precisely who we are as humans. The simple act of recognizing you're a sinner and that you need salvation will not make you sinless, nor does Christ expect you to be. He is our physician. And no doctor expects his patients to live as if they don't need his care. Now, obviously, this is not a license to sin. You're not just going to go around doing whatever you want, you know. It's far from it. If we read what Paul said carefully, he tells us that being a Christian means that you recognize you're sinful and you do not want to sin. You came to Christ to be healed, not to continue to be ill. We desire to do what is good, and any patient who wants to be healed will want to allow their doctor to heal them in a slow but steady recovery. But notice what Paul says in the next chapter. In Romans 8, 10 to 11, it says, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, Scripture is very clear that it is the Holy Spirit living inside of us that changes us. We do not make ourselves good so that we can be a good Christian. Being a Christian is realizing it is the Holy Spirit that changes you. 
an interesting comparison um, that Paul does in his letter to the Galatians, where he contrasts the works of the flesh, you know, uh, envy, um, idolatry, sexual immorality, uh, etc., with the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, patience, peace, etc. But why did he contrast works with fruit? Why not the fruit of the spirit with the weeds of the flesh? I think he did that on purpose because works are something that we do. They are done by the flesh and happen and they happen instantly. But the growing of fruit is not something that we do directly. Now, any farmer will tell you that fruit grows on its own. All the farmer can do is set the right conditions to allow the fruit to grow. But the farmer cannot speed up the process to works. He must set the right conditions. He must, you know, give it fertilizer, give it water, give it sun, let it have sunshine, and it will grow. Given the right amount of time. What the New Testament tells us over and over is that we cannot get good for God. Any attempt of that will fail. Instead, our only hope is to allow the Holy Spirit to work in us and sanctify us. What we are called to do is to give our lives to Christ and set the right conditions for the Holy Spirit to grow the spiritual fruits inside of us. Amen. Amen. This means instead of focusing on our own works and letting that be the focus of our Christian walk, we are called to focus on Christ and in doing so he would change us from within. There's an old church hymn that goes like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's beautiful. This is hard to accept for many Christians, though, because. Oh, well, I know there there's plenty of work that the Lord still has to do in me and in many others. And I wish that it would all be over today. I know, yeah, like today, right now, because in today's age, everyone wants things instant right now, but that's not how Christ will work in you. The idea of waiting for the fruit of the spirit to mature us, it, it seems dreadful. This is probably why we get worried and upset when it doesn't happen, you know, like snap of the finger. But, and in fact, that's probably the reason why we try to help God along and try to, you know, do all these little things to try to make it more convenient for God to change us. But no, our works will do nothing, only his works. In the scriptures, when God promised Abraham a son, a son, instead of allowing God to work, what did Sarah and Abraham do? They tried to help God along by having Abraham conceive Ishmael with Hagar. But what did that do? They only caused more problems than it solved. Does not the attempt of trying to get good through our own works either create failure and depression or a sense of pride and moralism in us? Since when does God need our help? I know that sometimes we worry that sin will make us unworthy before God and that we better hurry up and fix it so that God will show favor upon us. But do you really think any of your works will change the way God views you? When the father looks at you, he doesn't see the sin that makes you feel unworthy. He, see, he sees his son or daughter who has Christ living in them. 
All your sins were buried and done away with at the foot of the cross, and you have been set free through the work of Christ alone. Nothing you ever do, whether good or evil, will ever change that. Amen. Let's go to Hebrews 4.10. It says, it's a pretty short verse. It says, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. As a Christian, you have been free from the need to do works. Christ did what you could never do, and all who want to be healed from their sin need only to call upon his name and are forgiven and accepted. Your present sin cannot change that. So free yourself from the guilt, the shame, and the dreadful feeling you have been rejected. And instead, focus your attention on the love that Christ has given you. Lay your sins and your good deeds at the feet of Jesus and allow his love and purpose to consume you. If you focus on him and remember that you are accepted, there will be no worry to, there will be no need to worry about your past sin. If you have failed him or if you will fail him tomorrow for the love of God will fill you. And in there, there'll be no room for pride or defeat for all these feelings that result from sin will be forgotten in the light of his glory and grace. Now I want to move on to my final topic of this message. We will be exploring an interesting question. Is Christianity slavery? Now, the short answer, no, of course. But there are many in the world today who reject Christ and ask, why? Why would anyone want to be a Christian? Don't you, you know, lose all freedom? You know, instead of doing what you want, you have to confirm to all the strict rules that God lays out for you. How could anyone enjoy that? These questions, they come from a belief that we have given up all freedom. But in his letter to the Galatians, again, uh, back to St. Paul, he says something important to note. We can see in Galatians 5 verse 1, it reads, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Hmm. Interesting. How can this be? How can Christianity be free them? The amazing truth is that we find more freedom in Christ than living without him. This is because freedom is a bit more complex than how we traditionally think of it. There was a man by the name Isaiah Berlin. He was a Christian philosopher who wrote an essay titled Two, Concert, Two Concepts of Liberty, where he points out that there are two different kinds of freedom. There was negative freedom and there was positive freedom. The first sense, negative freedom, is what we commonly think of as freedom. It is what we're able to do that is humanly possible, what we have the capacity to do. How many options are available to us, basically? It is when we are free to do as we please, unrestricted, or freedom from restrictions. Like, I'm free to, I don't know, do push-ups. Like, just stop this and do push-ups. I'm free to walk around. Like, just whatever you want to do, you can do. That's freedom. That's negative freedom. But there's another sense of freedom. It's a better sense of freedom, which Berlin calls positive freedom. Now... This kind of freedom is what humans really want to attain. Positive freedom is the freedom, is what we are free to become. It is the freedom to become something better or to find your fundamental purpose, which gives you a passion or reason for living. An example would be riches. Now, most of us here are not free to be filthy rich or to have a wonderful career. 
um, I mean, we'll have it in Jesus' name, but, <laughs> you know, at the moment, we're not free to, you know, just have loads of money. But if you wanted that to be your, your purpose, you would dedicate your life to it. You would restrict yourself to focus on obtaining the goal. You would work hard and use valuable time. Then you would experience positive freedom of becoming something better and be filled with a purpose. But to get there, you would have to surrender and restrict all sorts of negative freedom. Some people, friends perhaps, who prefer to give their wills to more negative freedom and live in a moment, will think that you are a slave to this new purpose you're trying to fill. But for you, you would actually be experiencing a better kind of freedom, a better sense of freedom, becoming something better that fills you with satisfaction in a better sense of life. And when you earn this sense of positive freedom, you also find yourself with more negative freedom available than if you had never constrained yourself to become some, someone with more knowledge, control, and skills. In this sense, bettering ourselves also frees us from ignorance, less rational desires, and slavery from short-term gratifications. Positive freedom carries us to a better life with better freedom from lower desires and better fulfillment. Or it gives us better fulfillment. In fact, we are all trying to obtain positive freedom in some way. Growing into an intellectual and mature, intellectual and immature person gives us more freedom than we would have ever had if we had never restricted than if we had never restricted our negative freedom available to us. For example, a college graduate is more free than a high school dropout. And we all desire to become something better and obtain a purpose that liberates us to a higher sense of life. Whether we dedicate ourselves to a career, a cause, a passion, a family member, a friend, or a spiritual quest, we are all seeking, seeking out something to liberate us to a better sense of freedom and fulfillment, even if we are looking in the wrong places. There is something in all of us seeking freedom and purpose and something greater than what we are now. Just having negative freedom doesn't give us what we desire and is why we seek a higher sense of it. But what Christians, what we, come to find is trying to earn this purpose will never work. When we try to find purpose and experience and experience a deeper freedom in something, we have to work for it. It takes time and dedication. However, what we find is that it's never really enough. If you build your life on a career, for example, if it will give you a sense of purpose and positive freedom, then, but you have to keep working at it to keep advancing. The grind literally never stops. You have to keep going. A sense of fulfillment is never really there because there's always more to gain. There's always more room to grow. You become a slave to it because there's never a finishing point. Just a consuming desire to keep advancing and proving yourself. If you try to find positive freedom in a cause or a passion, it will give you a sense of accomplishing something, but it will not fill you with the assurance you need that you are, just, that you are more than just a disposable asset. A purpose in a career, in a cause, like a career, is built on how well you do in it and how well it progresses. And if it begins to fail you and you fail at reaching it, then you have lost the very thing you're living for and your worth with it. But what about finding fulfillment in a loved one, like a spouse or a child? The same thing. The only, the one thing we have to face is that they are human, just as we are, filled with shortcomings, and they will never be as perfect as we want them to be. We may end up putting all types of standards on them that they can never live up to. And we will either, live, we will either lose them 
or have to face that they did not live up to the standard we desired. Trying to find purpose in the love of another or in living through your child will have to face you will have to face the inevitable will have to face the inevitable consequences that they are not selfless and or made just to be there to fulfill you putting your highest purpose in another imperfect being what will that do you get back imperfection disappointment yes what we have found as christians is no matter what you seek, it will never fulfill you with the assurance you need because you will either fail by your own shortcomings or it will fail to meet what you truly need. But for Christians, we have found something better. We have found positive freedom in Christ. Instead of having to earn it through work or sacrifice, it has already been paid for us. Instead of having to work at it and deal with our own shortcomings and ability to ever be good enough, the love of Christ is freely given and paid for. Instead of trying to find love and freedom in, a per in an imperfect being, we have found freedom in the only perfect being. Who knew that, that we would never be able to find true fulfillment and freedom if it was based on what we did? We would always fall short and never be fulfilled and satisfied if it had to be based on our works which is why he willingly came and went to the cross to defeat our sins. He lived a perfect life for us. And in his love, we find fulfillment knowing that we do not need to earn it or work for it, but instead know that we are loved for who we are. Through his sacrifice, we are made whole without our own shortcomings, getting in the way and holding us back. Freedom in Christ takes away the slavery one has to deal with elsewhere because there's nothing that needs to be earned. So we are not a, we are not a slave to our own works or effort, but freely giving love and fulfillment as we are. What this means is instead of trying to find positive freedom in a passion, a cause, a career, or another human being, we have already been given a purpose and freedom in the only perfect being. As Christians, Instead of using others as a means to an end for your own fulfillment, we can rest on Christ's love and assurance. We can do a good deed without the need of trying to use it as an underlying motive to fulfill us. We can love as Christ loved us. So, is Christianity slavery quite the opposite? Second, Corinthians 3:17 It says Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is there is liberty Mhm mm There is true positive freedom and purpose found in Christ which fulfills us with the assurance of love and acceptance the love of God is freely giving to us, and this liberates us from seeking it in places we can never earn it. We have already been graciously given acceptance by God. We do not need to earn it to prove our worth. This has liberated us and equipped us to use our lives to spread the message of hope and free, the, the message of hope and freedom. Being given the love and freedom in Christ, we have been fulfilled in a way that nothing else ever can. It gives us what we need to truly make this world a better place without using that as an underlying motive to try and fulfill us. Doing the good no longer means a means to no longer becomes a means to an end, but the end in itself. When we as Christians truly surrender to Christ, we are free to seek the good in this life and dedicate ourselves to making the world a better place without the need to use it to fulfill us. True freedom, true liberty is in knowing Christ and what he has done for us. Nothing else will ever fulfill you or ever compare. So if there's anything to hold on to in this message, it is this.
The Lord's church must be humble and reject self-conceit in every way we can. Amen. Amen. However, we must not feel hopeless when our works are not enough. For Christ's works are more than enough. Christ came for a reason, a good one, the best one. He liberated us from something that would have dragged us down to a fate worse than anything mankind's imagination could even fathom. He also liberated us from the infinite cycle of never being fulfilled by our own efforts to obtain positive liberty, to obtain positive freedom and liberty. And the wonderful thing is, he did it with nothing but his love. And that kind of liberty is something truly glorious. Amen. Amen. Let's close with prayer. Father, Lord, we're so thankful to you, Father, for this lesson has, has, has gone through. I pray that many people here picked up this message. I pray everyone has picked up this message, however it helps them in any way, whether to reject pride, whether to never feel dreadful, whether to never feel any depression because they think that they are failing you in every way that they are sinning. Lord, we are not perfect. Quite the opposite, Lord. We cannot be good by our own works. You make us good instead. You make us good by your efforts. Your efforts are more than enough, Lord. So, Lord, I pray for this congregation, O oh Lord, that any moment that there is pride creeping up inside of them, any feeling of narcissism or superiority over others because they have the honor of serving you cast it away from them lord cast that spirit from them so that all they can do is focus on spreading you on ministering for you and lord we are all your adopted children you loved us more than we can ever know. You loved us more than we could ever love. This glorious liberty that you have shown us from our that you've you've shown us when you died on the cross, these sins that we have laid to rest. It truly makes us free, Lord. It truly liberates us, Lord. You are the greatest liberator. No other revolution in the history of mankind can compare to the revolution that you went through, oh Lord. Through your revolution, you created a new movement of believers who believe that you are, you died for us, Lord. That you would cut off these chains that are dragging us down, Lord. That no matter how toxic our sinful desires may be, no matter how toxic sin is, Lord, you help us to escape the gravity of sin, Lord, to reach you, Father. Lord, I want to pray that, you know, as I come off of this altar and the next people come to minister, Lord, I pray that you speak through them you let no pride come through them O oh lord only true humility lord i thank you for using me as part of your body to preach to these wonderful people in this church lord i've been in this church for a long time i have not seen anyone prideful I've only seen humble and wonderful people, Lord. I am so glad to be around them. And I pray you do the same for me, Lord. However long it takes, whatever fruit needs to be built within me, Lord, I pray that it, however long it takes, that I be patient for it, Lord. And me, among many others in this CG, in these, in the youth, in this church, Lord, and as, as well as the seniors, 
I pray that you change them from within, Lord. You change them fully, Father. If you're in the Washington, D.C. region, visit in person at our address. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us in our social media. God bless you.